I'd like to add just a couple of footnotes to the very provocative question that Noah raised, but beforehand I want to deal with a logistical issue that Kathleen very kind, kindly brought to my attention. And that is, as you might have noticed, I got kind of swept up in a flow yesterday. And when I saw it was 6.20, I was really quite surprised. I, I had no idea. Uh, I hope that will be the only time that happens, because I think we all appreciate and respect our cooks so much, the last thing we want to do is just have them waiting and waiting and waiting for us. So I would not, I'd like not to replicate that. If I get really into a good flow, I really, something really cool, fine, to be continued tomorrow. You know, hopefully there'll be still tomorrow. And so I would say maximum five minutes over, but no more. So Kathleen, I think you volunteered. Uh, you can, yeah, that'll do it. I know that sign. Time, you, you can get to 6.02, 6.03. Make it really clear, you know, and if I don't see you, stand up, you know. <laughs> I'm inviting you, okay? Because we all want to show our appreciation and respect by showing up on time. Maybe that's the least we can do when they're even cleaning up after us. So, so I don't think we need to shift times, but I think we just be punctual within five minutes. I think that'll be good enough, okay? So with that said, footnotes. Footnotes to the very big question that Noah raised yesterday. The first one's this. And that is my assertion yesterday was for the arhat, who's achieved, who has become an arhat, hasn't yet died. Still in the flow of the five skandhas, still in the flow of, of conditioned mental consciousness generated by, by karma from the past lives, conditioned by karma from past lives, that although this person ascertains nirvana whenever going into meditative equipoise, dwelling in such meditation, but the person doesn't realize rikva, and there's no grounds in the whole Pali canon for suggesting that this person does realize that dimension of consciousness that is, lingers over after death. I've not seen any, any such source. Realizing nirvana, dhammadhatu, emptiness, yes. But that subtlest dimension, the unconditioned awareness, no. And then that's what's left with the death of the arhat, and that is it's, it's, it's like the sheath, the layer of the ordinary mind, the conditioned mind, the samsaric mind, is removed, and then that which was unmanifest becomes manifest. So that dimension of awareness, as I mentioned yesterday, is called the unseen, the unmanifest, the invisible awareness. I think in Tibetan it would be something like mingumbeshepa, mingumbeshepa. So non-manifest. Non-manifest why? What obscures it? The ordinary mind, the five skandhas, the feelings, mental formations, and so forth, which are still operative. And I think maybe not a bad analogy here would be, as long as the sun is shining bright in the sky, you just don't see the stars. They're there. They're shining just as brightly during the daytime as during the nighttime, but obviously we don't see them, because one just overwhelms the other. And that's my sense of it, that for these five skandhas, including the, the skanda of consciousness, including mental consciousness, it just outshines. It overwhelms and makes non-manifest, makes invisible this unconditioned level of awareness. Terminate that, cut that, and then there's the unconditioned mind realizing the unconditioned. There's a symmetry there, and there we go. So as long as the, so the implication here, if this is true, the implication here is as long as these coarser dimensions of mind are manifest, active, manifest and active, the very subtle is obscured, not manifest. Well, lo and behold, the same theme. Now, that's a bit of speculation. Now, I'll say something that's not speculation. Now, I'll just say this is true. That is according to the classic Vajrayana teachings pertaining to the state of regeneration and completion. You'll recall there's the coarse mind, subtle mind, very subtle mind. 
And there are the corresponding energies, coarse energy, subtle energy, very subtle energy, prana, and they're extremely closely conjoined. The, the ordeal of engaging in these elaborate visualizations and mantra and so forth, the cultivation of insight, cultivation of compassion, that are part and parcel of stage of generation, with sometimes very elaborate visualizations and so forth, and then the more pointed types of visualizations and other practices involved in stage of completion. What are they for? And I can tell you in a very short way, what they are sure is making, what, are they, what they are for is to make go dormant the coarse mind and the coarse energies into subtle, and then the, and the subtle mind into dissolve that, make it non-manifest, and the coarse and the subtle energies non-manifest to go into very subtle energy, so that only the very subtle energy, the very subtle mind are manifest, and you realize the innate mind of clear light. But the idea here is it's like a seesaw. And then so in, insofar as the coarse or subtle mind are active, they obscure the very subtle mind, which is rikpa. They obscure it. And so you have to get them to go completely dormant. They have to go down. The sun of the coarse and subtle mind has to go dormant before the star, the stars of the very subtle mind, rikpa, can manifest. So one's up, one's down, but they're not going to manifest at the same time. So it looks like there's a parallel there in the Pali Canon, as we find in, lo and behold, Vajrayana practice. And that's why you're going to such lengths to get all the energies into the central channel, into the central chakra, into the indestructible bindu at the heart, to get all the coarse energies deactivated, and subtle energies deactivated, one by one, and there's a whole bunch of them, get them all to be deactivated until only the very subtle energy remains, and only the very subtle consciousness remains. And then you realize this ultimate dimension of awareness. But the other ones have to go dormant first. So it looks like there's a parallel there. Now, in contrast to that, Dzogchen, it's a different method. The method of the texture and the Turkel is really, really different than the method of stage of generation and completion. So are these two warring sects, like the, the Dzogchen against the Vajrayana people? Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. In this one classic that I've translated, the Vajra Essence, he goes through Shamata Vipassana, and then he goes into a detailed description, a marvelous detailed description of stage of generation, then a detailed description of multiple practices, including Dumo and Poa and Jir, on the stage of completion, and then he goes to Tekchu, the breakthrough, and Turkel, the direct crossing over. He would not teach those all in the same text if they were incompatible. It's all of a continuum. What he does say is that for those, this is Dujum Lingba, what he does say is for those who are drawn to a more elaborate path, on the basis of having cultivated the shamatha, the vipassana, and certainly you're going to be cultivating bodhicitta, you're not going to wait, upon the basis of those, for those who are drawn to a more elaborate path, a richer, a more textured, diverse path, then here we are. Here's the stage of generation, here's the stage of completion, and he lays it out in about 200, 300 pages. So he really meant it. But he does say, for those who are not drawn to elaboration, Drupadandarwa, those who are, who are drawn to a, a more, how to say, unelaborated path, the bare essentials, straight without aggregations, without ornamentation, well, not ornamentation, but without any elaborations, then po, the straight and narrow, as you well know by now, shamata vipassana takes you into a Breakthrough and direct crossing over with relative bodhicitta coming out of ultimate bodhicitta which is Rigpa. So there's that. So that was one footnote.
Here's the second footnote. Many of you have read my books or just heard teachings have heard me refer to the principle in, within Buddhism of conservation of consciousness. Conservation of consciousness. As in physics, as some of us very well, very well know, there's a conservation of mass energy. I would say there's also a conservation of space. Space doesn't turn into non-space. Non-space doesn't turn into space. So space, according to general relativity, can be warped, can't it? It can, be, it can be warped, it can be twisted by the presence of mass, and so space gets warped. But space doesn't become non-space, and non-space doesn't become space, so space becomes space. And likewise, for the contents of space, configurations of mass energy, you can do all kinds of things with configuration, configurations of mass energy. You can turn a lump of, lump of wood into heat and, and smoke and ash and so forth, which doesn't look like wood at all, but it's transformed. You can turn gas into liquid, liquid into solid. You can, in other words, the transmutations of these configurations of mass energy, the way you can transform, transform, they can go through a myriad radically different transformations. The one thing you can't do with a certain body or volume of mass energy, the one thing you can't do, there's no elixir, there's no super-duper paranormal ability you could apply or high-tech you can't make it become nothing that you just can't turn it into nothing at all and likewise if we step back and even think philosophically imagine you've got a volume here of just nothing I mean I just, just absolutely nothing at all try to imagine just totally nothing can you, can you imagine altering nothing in such a way that it becomes something I can't it doesn't make any sense at all. Nothing just, there's nothing to work with there. That's why it's called nothing, right? But configurations of mass energy, they just change and change and change, but you never get mass energy from nothing, and you get, never get mass energy to turn into nothing. Well, I would say in Buddhism, in the Buddha Dharma, the same is true of consciousness. You can't take nothing and transform it into consciousness. But no more can you take consciousness and turn it into nothing. It is one of those fundamental ingredients of the universe. And you can't just wave a wand or bang your head with a hammer and have consciousness become nothing. It really doesn't make any sense. But now, let's raise an objection. 80-year-old Arhat Noah, he's on his deathbed. He's eagerly looking forward to it. Finally, I get rid of these skandhas that I've been having carry around for so long, you know. Even though there's no real ego there, nevertheless, the body is the body, feelings are feeling. And the Arhat Noah is saying, oh boy, I'm about to breathe my last and get rid of the last vestiges of karma, the last carriers. And as the Buddha said, this carriage will never be rebuilt. Remember that one? This carriage will never be rebuilt. Never again, as the dying Arhat Noah is looking ahead, never again by the force of karma and klesha will he ever wind up once again with a carriage of the five skandhas subject, subject to mental afflictions and suffering. So you're looking at your last moments of being in samsara and like good riddance. You know, you're just waiting any, oh, any day, any, any moment now. I still have to breathe in? Okay. Finished? No. Okay. How about now? You know, <laughs> any moment now. It's, it's okay. It's really, I'm really okay with this, you know. And the assertion here is that finally, at long last, the all five skandhas are going to get what? Terminated. Right? Terminated. 
ceased, cessation. There's no stronger way to say it. Finito. What happened to the conservation of consciousness? Now, obviously, his body just turns into a corpse. No problem from physics side. Body just, well, okay, body is body, and body just turning into manure, whatever. No problem there. But feelings, mental formations, discernment, consciousness, they just got terminated? Didn't that just violate the principle of conservation of consciousness? On the one hand, it looks like it does. But then I think it's time, really, if we want to bring the richest understanding, and none of this is mine, there's no opinion here, uh, if we want to bring in the richest understanding, that is, it is my opinion, this is the richest understanding, but I'm, where I'm going to is Vajrayana, to Vajrayana. And consider now, draw from whatever understanding, teachings you received on Vajrayana, pertaining, for example, to the five poisons. We have the three poisons you're all familiar with, delusion, craving, hostility, right? Then you can add two more, just to make it a fuller, fuller family. And that is you have envy and you have arrogance or pride. Those are called the five poisons. And they are all by, they're defined as mental afflictions. They are toxic. They are poisonous. And certainly the Arhat Noah, as he's facing his death, is to see, about to see the total and irreversible termination of these modes of consciousness. Five afflictions, they're going to be, he's already free of them. But now even the carrier, the consciousness that carried and got configured by these mental afflictions, even that's going to be terminated. But now think about Vajrayana. And that is, for example, the, let's take the classic one, the really good one to work with, the mental affliction of craving. The mental affliction of craving. It can be for money, it can be for sex, it can be for prestige and status and power. The mental affliction of craving. Is it wall-to-wall, 100%, absolutely toxic? Is it intrinsically toxic? intrinsically afflictive. Is there something in the nature of that craving that makes it indelibly, absolutely, and intrinsically afflictive? And the answer from the, Buddha, from the Vajrayana perspective, but I think not from the Theravada perspective. In terms of practice, mental afflictions are just to be dispelled, banished, period. Get rid of them. Whenever you see them, clobber them. Get rid of them one way or another, but there's just nothing good about a cr- attachment, craving, or hostility. So just be free of them as soon as possible, sever them, period. Don't think about befriending them or working with them or transforming them. Get rid of them. That's my impression. I, it, it looked like just like, you know, zero tolerance. Just get rid of them. And that's the monastic route, mon- mon- monastic as monastic. You don't try to work with your craving or work with your hostility. You work to do away with it. But some monastics, like Tsongkhapa and many others, are not only monastics, but they're also Vajrayana practitioners. And as soon as you slip into Vajrayana, you're looking, for example, on the mental affliction of craving, and you're seeing it is not intrinsically, absolutely, 100% afflictive, but in fact it is a, an obscured manifestation of a facet of primordial wisdom. Primordial wisdom or primordial consciousness. Yeshe. So attachment, craving, karasamane. It's the, the primordial consciousness of discernment. Primordial consciousness, primordial wisdom, primordial consciousness, I'm using the words interchangeably. But it's a, it is a facet, a feature of rikpa, of primordial consciousness, that is one of discernment. Of, of discernment is probably the best, tra- tra- uh, the best translation. 
it is a facet of primordial consciousness, but when veiled, and then through the process of reification and manifesting in the mind of a samsaric being, manifests as, flowers as, the mental affliction of craving. Take anger. Take anger, the mental affliction of anger, hostility, hatred, and so forth. It looks, when you experience it, like this is just toxic. This is just toxic. But from the Vajrayana perspective, say, of course it's toxic, but that's how it's manifesting because of the way it's being apprehended, identified with, grasped onto, but it's not intrinsically toxic because this is actually an expression, an obscured expression of mirror-like primordial consciousness. Mirror-like primordial wisdom. A facet of primordial consciousness. So I won't go through all five, but each of the five toxins, in fact, is stemming from and is a manifestation of, now we go beyond, if we go back to the conversation with Kathleen, and that is, these mental afflictions are the expressions of your psyche. Of course they are. They're part of the texture of the psyche. Where are they coming from? They're stemming from the seeds sown in or stored in the substrate consciousness. Not somebody else's, they're coming from your own substrate. Some people are more prone to anger, some people less. Why? The seeds, the proclivities, the habituations stored in the substrate consciousness. So where is it coming from? Substrate consciousness. When you're dwelling in the substrate consciousness, are you dwelling in a pool of, of hostility and craving and delusion? No, you're dwelling in a pool of luminosity and bliss and non-conceptuality, but they are dormant, they are seeds ready to germinate, and they do all they need is a catalyst. Meeting a disagreeable person, anger arises. Meeting somebody in a dream that is very disagreeable, anger arises. So the seeds are germinated and they manifest in the psyche, whether in the dream state or in the waking state. That's on the conventional level, on the relative level. But if we go for the deep, deep root system, the ultimate root system, where is that anger arising from? It's ultimately stemming from the deepest dimension, which is one of primordial purity. And this is a polluted expression, a deformed expression of mirror-like primordial wisdom. And that's true for all of the five poisons, that none of them are intrinsically all the way up, all the way down, 100% toxic. They're in fact disfigured configurations, expressions of facets of primordial consciousness, represented by the five Buddha families, right? In which case, and that goes for the five skandhas, the five skandhas also are expressions of this deepest dimension. And so, on a conventional level, if you're looking at it here, and you're watching Arhat Noah approaching death, approaching death, and then, boop, he just got terminated, all the five skandhas, you see, whoop, yes on the left, no on the right, just ended, whoop, he died, he's now Arhat without re residue. But if you could look down beneath, you would see that the course of manifestation just dissolved, but it didn't become nothing. It dissolved into the source from which it arose didn't become nothing. The consciousness, the feelings, the discernment, and all of that dissolve back into primordial. So there is a conservation of consciousness all the way through. And as there's a conservation of mass energy within physical space, there's a conservation of energy in terms of the energy mind, Lung Sen, mind energy. Lama Yishi had a wonderful book by that name, I think, Energy Mind, wasn't it? Wisdom energy, there we go, wisdom energy, but very much on the same theme. Thank you. Uh, but this, there is, just as there's conservation of mass energy within physical space, there's also conservation of consciousness energy within ultimate space, Dhamma Datu. 
conservation rules. Conservation rules. And it just occurred to me right now, maybe that's, maybe because of that ultimate conservation, and really it's a really core ultimate conservation, isn't it? If this is true, maybe that has something to do with the assertion, especially from the Dzogchen perspective, but elsewhere as well, not, a, not confined to Dzogchen, that the, the ground, the path, and the fruition, Jilam Desum, are all simultaneously existent and of the same nature. If there's total conservation, then from one perspective, nothing ever happened. Because Rikpa is timeless. Rikpa is beyond time. Emptiness is beyond time. So from one perspective, these are not being played out in absolute time. They're all actually of the same nature. Now I mentioned the teeter-totter. The teeter-totter according to what looks like to be the case in the Theravada tradition, what is the case in Vajrayana. You have to get the coarse and subtle minds to go dormant before the very subtle mind can manifest. And I mentioned that in Dzogchen that is not the case. The strategy, the methods are very different. And the assertion in Dzogchen, which is one delicious assertion to put to the test of experience. I mean, I find all of this enormously inspiring and fascinating as challenges for experience. And if we just teach it as Buddhist theology or Buddhist doctrine, then I suddenly, uh, oh, back to shamat. I'd rather just practice shamat. Rather than just being burdened with a whole bunch of, I don't know, metaphysical stuff. If this can actually become experiential, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> to put it lightly. And the Dzogchen position here is that it is not necessarily true in all cases. That you have to get the coarse and subtle minds to go dormant, to go invisible, before the very subtle mind can manifest. And why is that? Because even anger, oh, I'm so upset, what I'm upset about? I have to really think about this one. I mean, recent past. They didn't have granola this morning. Did you notice? <laughs> there was no granola. They had that long stringy stuff and they had the other stuff, but they had no granola. Doesn't that just piss you off? <laughs> no granola. I mean, what's wrong? They must be really losing it there, right? No granola. Didn't you get kind of upset? Hey, there's no granola. You know? <laughs> Maybe not that upset. But even imagine, imagine, I really managed to handle my upsetness this morning. But imagine getting really upset. Hey, where's the granola? I was really counting on granola. Where's the cook? Bring out the cook. Where's the granola? I like granola. And imagine really getting upset about something incredibly petty like that. That upsetness, that irritation, that anger. I paid to be here, and that means I paid for granola, and granola's not here, and I want granola every single day because I'm counting on granola. Granola is important for my well-being, and you're depriving me of that. That's about as petty as it gets, isn't it? Isn't that pretty classic? Really, really petty anger? That expression, that is an expression of rikpa. I took the pettiest one I could think of. Really, really petty. And it's irritation. It's really just nasty, ridiculous, absurd irritation. And that is an expression of Ripa. It's not to say that it's to be embraced. Oh, I like pettiness. I like, you know, no. But that petty anger, irritation, is nothing other than, it's not separate from, it does not spring from a source other than Ripa. It is a form of anger. Anger is the 
contaminated manifestation of mirror-like primordial wisdom. And that includes an incredibly petty anger like that. So the Dzogchen strategy here, and that's exactly what we're talking about, not metaphysics, not just mysticism or doctrine and so forth, it's strategy, is when, if you can ever have such petty anger as that one, I think I really went to the bottom of the barrel for that one, such petty anger, if you, even in such cases of petty anger, let alone really righteous anger, you know, like whatever, right in the midst of that, when the anger is arising, if you can break through it, if you can break through it, not identify with it, so now we're back to without distraction, without grasping, we see how settling the mind is setting you up for Dzogchen. It's exactly setting you up at the shamatha phase. If you can be aware of this very petty anger arising and attend to it without distraction, that is, without thinking about granola and how your, your day would have gone so much better with granola and that's basically to be crippled for the rest of the day because you just didn't get started out on the right foot, not getting caught up in distraction and not identifying with grasping onto the anger, not entering into the cognitive fusion with the anger but simply being aware of it as free as possible of any kind of grasping and peer into it, peer into it, penetrate through it. There's a possibility of penetrating right through the disfiguration into the mirror-like wisdom that is manifesting as petty anger. The same thing goes for, for envy, all accomplishing primordial consciousness, delusion, primordial consciousness of Dhammadhatu, and what's the third one? Oh yeah, the one there, the navel chakra. Ah yeah, yeah, the wisdom of quality, corresponding to the wisdom of equality, corresponding to pride, pride. What's that? It's pride. Yeah, pride. So, quite interesting. In Vajrayana practice, you're taking those five. That is, Vajrayana practice is by nature alchemical. It is one of transmutation. It's taking the energy of these mental afflictions and transmuting them by means of the wisdom practices of stage generation completion. The sense is of transmuting them into, right? Into primordial consciousness. And the strategy in Dzogchen is not transmuting them at all, but seeing through to the nature that is already there. And therefore being able to see, to perceive, to make manifest Rikpa, even when the coarse mind is still manifest. Because assertion here is, I remember His Holiness teaching on this once, of speaking of Rikpetzel, the creative manifestations, the creative manifestations of Rikpa. Tzel means like creative energy, something dynamic, something coming out. And viewing all phenomena, all mental states, as Rikpetzel, as creative manifestations of pristine awareness and seeing them as such. Not trying to transmute them, but actually breaking through and seeing them as such. So in fact, you don't have to have them dormant. The mental afflictions, and this is, this is incredible alchemy, the mental afflictions become your aid to achieving enlightenment. That's, that's pretty clever. <laughs> if you can take your worst enemy, and take your worst enemy and turn it into your friend, an aid to enlightenment, that is very crafty. And that's Dzogchen. And mental afflictions certainly do catch the attention. Right? A really, really, a very really robust one. Really, blah, anger catches the attention. 
Let's just take one more point on. Oh, it's six o'clock. By cracky. Didn't even get to one. Yep. Can I do this in one minute? I can do it in one minute. I see it. And in one minute, I will not go beyond 6.05. Just consider the substrate. Now let's just go back home. Consider the substrate. Bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Isn't there something really kind of fun about attachment and craving? Frankly, if you really, you know, really want something a lot, kind of, ah, I like it. Isn't there something kind of blissful and experiencing craving? And I got it. I really want to keep it. I really like it. The nature of attachment is bliss. When you're experiencing anger, isn't there something really sharp, like a blade, like a flaming sword about anger? You get really pissed off. Isn't there something really sharp about that? Really luminous? Anger is the display of the luminosity of your substrate. Craving is a display of the bliss of your substrate. And on our occasions when you just feel flat out stupid, <laughs> just, what, what, what? What? <laughs> what, me? You're talking about me? What? Huh? <laughs> Stupidity is a display of the non-conceptuality of your substrate. Stupidity, delusion, bewilderment is a display of the non-conceptuality of your substrate consciousness. So, welcome home. Let's have dinner and respect our cooks. We'll get to the questions tomorrow, but we got to one, and that is end on time. Ha ha. Oh yeah, Monday, Monday. Oh, day off. Get to meditate all day. Happy days. See you Monday morning.